Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. My name is Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, and I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a great show on tap for you this week. We're going to talk about controversies in the genre fiction world. There will be movie reviews. We're going to talk about many goings-on at the game show Jeopardy, a favorite topic here on the podcast. We're going to get things started this week with a song called Don't Don't Do It from Nerd and Kendrick Lamar. We have a a controversy in the literary world involving a book called Cops vs. Monsters that's never going to actually come to be, and this is an excellent song from 2018 about cops being monsters. There's no real song about cops versus monsters, and I didn't want to subject you to Monster Mash, so enjoy a few seconds of that. And then we're going to talk to frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, Rachel Llewellyn. First up this week, it's Rachel Llewellyn writing about something outside of her usual coverage area. She's covering one of our uh, censorship and cancel culture controversies in the literary world that we love to cover here at Book and Film Globe. Rachel, hello. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me. Of course, always a pleasure. What have you got for us this week? It's something about uh, Cynthia Palaio, who is like an independent horror writer out of Chicago. And uh, you, you, you stumbled onto this story and, and spent quite a while sort of sorting out the details. I did stumble onto it um, just by chance. I was looking up some censorship-related articles, and I found um, one about her. And it got me curious, so I went kind of searching for myself, and I couldn't find a trace of it. She had kind of, you know, scrubbed it off of all of her platforms. Um, so it got me interested, and I actually had to track back and get um, some of the screenshots after the fact that sort of, you know, that was my source material. But the story is an interesting one, and it is happening all across uh, young adult fiction and fiction. So it's pretty interesting how Twitter responded. I mean, she does, she does procedural. She does a lot of dark, you know, she did her latest one was a uh, crime procedural children of Chicago. And it was interesting to me that she had put out pretty similar topical content. And then a couple months later, kind of slightly tweaked it to include police. And uh, you know, the backlash was pretty, yeah. pretty quick. Let's backtrack here. So, so uh, Cynthia Palaio proposed. She hadn't even written this yet. She proposed a book called it "Was It Cops Versus Monsters?" Like an anthology. an anthology would be written by her and other writers in her community or genre community. Um, and she was hit with a uh, with a, a, a flurry of online criticism, saying that you can't be glorifying the police in, in times like this. That's more or less uh, what I picked up on from what I could see of, uh, you know, the online kerfuffle that that kind of resulted. And, yeah, it was it was interesting because, you know, we'll never really know. I think it kind of quashed an opportunity for other writers who are marginalized or independent to kind of throw their twist on this, you know, current narrative. I think people really missed out on an opportunity to use that as a platform to, you know, talk about policing and the nuances and the complexities of the issue. 
So to me, it was kind of a loss. Right. Well, it's not like Cynthia Palaio is some sort of, you know, uh, right wing Blue Lives Matter writer. I mean, I, th- I from looking at her career, I believe she's Puerto Rican and the community she surrounds herself with are you know, a, lot, a lot of women, a lot of women of color, you know, as, as a lot of genre writers are these days. And it, it, it strikes me that a cops versus monsters anthology um, put out by someone like people like them is not going to be the same as if say Robert Heinlein had did it in the 1950s. You know, it's like, it's like, so what are, what are we doing here? And, you know, and what are we, what are we really throwing the brakes on? Absolutely. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, writers are retooling these genres and they're sort of reframing them with their own experiences and identities in mind. And I think the, the great irony of having this, you know, identity policing is sort of, kind of killing a lot of independent, you know, writers of color, of color, the LGBTQIA community is like, you know, I can think of two examples where um, recent authors wrote books that were talking about people whose sexuality was ambiguous or fluid or non-gender conforming. And both of those authors were pretty much condemned and like forced to come out. I'm thinking of Becky Albertalli. She wrote an award-winning book series about, you know, not straight teens. She was very castigated for it online and kind of killed her Twitter for a while. And it eventually kind of forced her to basically come out as bisexual herself after, you know, years since she'd written her first book. Um, so, you know, the mental damage is kind of being done the opposite way. There was another young adult Filipino author. Um, his name is Rod Polito, and he wrote a book about, how, you know, um, a young gay boxer's experience in light of Manny Pacquiao's kind of homophobic comments. So, you know, Manny Pacquiao, the Filipino boxer. Sure. So this guy wrote, you know, a young adult novel about the bisexual, you know, that experience. And um, same thing happened. He couldn't shop this book around anywhere because he was married. And as soon as the publishers would um, you know, find that out, he, it was a no-go. So he essentially kind of had to also do the same thing, sort of belatedly come out um, as bisexual himself. So this kind of almost like forced pressure to out, to come out is pretty contrary, I think, to the values that are supposedly being espoused. Yeah, it's ironic, it's ironic, right? And the people who are being hurt most by current trends in publishing politics are the little guys. You know, like the woman who wrote American Dirt still made her money, you know, and still probably has a movie deal. You know, the there are people on the sort of top end of the literary scale aren't having to deal with this stuff. It's always small scale genre writers, people who are just excited to achieve their dream of finally publishing a novel or a memoir or whatever. And the breaks are getting thrown on them because they're they're involved in these communities, these online communities. You know, we we're going to talk about this next with William Schwartz, hopefully, you know, we're a story about how there's, there's the uh, romance writers uh, of America pulled had to pull an award from a book uh, because this writer had written a romance uh, set in around the battle of wounded knee. Why didn't I think of that? Uh, But they, you know, in in the book, she blames the Sioux for the, for, for all the trouble at wounded knee, which is strikes me as a very wrong headed take, but she's not, she didn't have her book pulled ahead of time because she's not on Twitter by an older woman. It's not like part of these communities. And so you've got these like online, these niche online communities that are just, are crushing writers in the cradle. Right, exactly. And I've seen that too. I mean, young adult fiction Twitter specifically is just 
absolutely something else. I mean, if you think about the 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 content that people are trying to censor, it's things like sex, violence, death, um, you know, identity. It's like young adult horror is the perfect intersection of all of these tropes. And, you know, plus in America where we live, when it comes to kids, where kids are involved, it's just the perfect storm in terms of content just begging to be parsed and rated, you know, and um, young adult Twitter specifically, the whole thing kind of, I wouldn't say birthed, but it definitely blew up with the hashtag own voices. Um, back in, I think maybe five or six years back, own voices was a big trend on Twitter. It basically tagged books with content matching the author's identity. Like in other words, you, the idea was you shouldn't write about a people group unless you belong to that group. So a lot of people would tag works by authors whose identity reflected their characters with the tag own books. So it just evolved into some kind of vague catch all sort of marketing term. So it ended up getting sort of retired by these groups, but the point is that there is, you know, kind of a fundamentalism behind these rating systems and censorship systems that is ironically very chilling to it has a chilling effect on a lot of up and coming writers of color. Ironically, Sylvia Moreno Garcia has an amazing thread about this on her Twitter. You guys should all check it out. Um, it's talking about how content warnings and rating systems can potentially be weaponized and harmful to writers of color. Um if you look online, she's got some really interesting stats about, you know, how storyography has more content warnings on, uh, I think it's their eyes are watching God has like twice as many content warnings for racism as gone with the wind. Their eyes so, are watching God by Zora Neale Hurston has content warning for, for racism. Yes, absolutely. That is correct. As if, as if, you know, as if that's a racist book, as if yeah, like twice as many racist tags has gone with the wind, by by the way. So and the, she also compared Octavia Butler's Kindred to Fifty Shades of Grey. Octavia Butler's Kindred has 24 different sexual terms associated with its content warning. Fifty Shades of Grey has one. It simply says sexual content. And this is on storyography specifically. It's an online kind of where you can tag works with content warnings. So when you crowdsource this type of thing. Again, the great irony is, is that it ends up kind of swaying against the favor of writers of color. Right, because the people who are putting these tags on are, are probably writers of color or people who care about if, if someone's reading Octavia Butler at all, it means <laughs> they're interested. Right. And, you know, the, the whole rating system, the reasoning behind that is kind of up for debate. Like, why do uh, authors of color get dinged and tagged more with content warnings and bannings? And, you know, if you could look at it two ways, is it because white readers and reviewers judge queer and POC authors, you know, under like a higher standard of respectability, you know, the burden of respectability, or does the queer and POC community spend more energy on content warnings and time tagging them because they're more likely to be aware of and sensitive to them? So there's two different ways to look at that, you know, hyper tagging and just kind of really over parsing these things for any slight mention. Like Sylvia Moreno Garcia mentions that someone tagged one of her uh, writings with animal death, even though the animal doesn't die or they'll tag it with drug use when there's only drinking in the story. So this is definitely a slippery slope. Yeah. It's so interesting that this, you mentioned fundamentalism, but this is fundamentalism of the left. You know, when you think of fundamentalism, you think of Christian fundamentalism, which, you know, still engages in its own sensorial behaviors, but it's it's far more muted in society and particularly in literary society than it used to be. 
the real censorship is coming from the left. And it's just just kind of bizarre because that's where most writers sit politically. It really is. And it's causing a lot of kind of internal, you know, conflict with these writers who once were part of these communities and were, you know, doing the same to other people's works. I think you yourself mentioned in another article for Book and Film Globe about um, like a young queer author of color whose book was kind of banned because of its uh, treatment of, I think, I don't remember the Albanian Muslim massacre. We've had, we've run so many of these articles that right. it, it, right. it kind of flow together at some point. It's, you know, it's like, Who's going to be left? Who's going to be left to write the content? Yeah, you know, yeah. what's going to mm-hmm. It's going to consume itself. And, you know, I do think that there's a responsible way to give readers informed choices about what they consume without, you know, weaponizing it to harm writers from marginalized communities and without, you know, over applying it to really stifle the creative community. Even if a writer is writing something bald-facedly offensive, they should still be allowed to do it. And then the market can decide. And if it finds an audience, it finds an audience, whether you find it offensive or not. That's the way I look at it. But. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Just um, I think things will. So, you know, reading books is a choice. It's an engagement that we have to make a voluntary you know, choice to do. And I think the onus is on the reader as well to kind of do their due diligence if they do have particular sensitivities, um, you know, and as well, you know, you can Google a book. You, um, you know, authors who are peer authors who write intros, you know, they can, <laughs> I don't know, that might be a bad idea to kind of, you know, get with the author and maybe add some content warnings written in with the intro. Who knows? No. There's better no, ways no. to do it. <laughs> you don't even want to go there, huh? <laughs> no, I'm against content warnings. If you read a book and you find it annoying or offensive, tell your friends, put it on your Facebook feed, write about it on Twitter. Leave a Goodreads or a Yelp or whatever review, you know, go to go to whatever Angie's list is now called and complain. I don't care where you do it. Do not try to censor stuff because because it, it never ends well. And it just ends up with every book getting censored or getting tagged with content warnings. And uh, that is just not something that I think we want in our society. Yeah. Slippery slope, as I mentioned. Yeah, for sure. But it, it's well, an interesting trip down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and I'm glad you're, you're, uh, you're, you, you, um, took, you ate the pill that threw you down the rabbit hole because it, because it's good to have your voice and your thought process in on this because you, you know, you think things through so well. And you have a great piece this week on Book and Film Globe about Cynthia Palaio's, uh, late lamented Cops versus Monsters anthology that none of us would have even known about if it hadn't been canceled. So, uh, so Rachel, thank you. So great to talk to you and we will catch up with you soon. Jake Harris is back on the Book and Film Globe podcast. I'm Neil Pollack, the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Jake writes about a number of different things for the site and this week. He covered the Scarlett Johansson suit. Uh, she's suing Disney for, I'm not exactly, honestly, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Basically, she's doc, she doesn't think she's getting paid enough because they changed the distribution model of her movie Black Widow. But Jake, you are our, our resident expert on the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit, so maybe you can tell us what's going on. 
Yeah, uh, that you basically summed it up pretty well. Uh, she is suing Disney. She filed a lawsuit last week uh, in California, uh, saying that she lost out on somewhere around fifty million dollars because of the distribution of Black Widow, and that was a movie that got pushed. I don't even know. I I wrote about it in the article, but it, the release date got moved so many times uh, just because of COVID and. Uh, you know, they kept having to push back the release date for that and every other Marvel movie that they had planned off of that. Um, but she, the crux of the lawsuit is basically saying that her contract with Disney stipulated that, uh, she would get more money off of, uh, box office receipts for her salary. Uh, and they didn't discuss Disney Plus distribution at all back when it was originally planning to come out. Cause again, who could have seen that coming? Um, and uh, so when it did finally get put out on Disney Plus uh, in July, they uh, different reports have different things. They kind of went back and forth on are we going to put it on Disney Plus uh, exclusively or are we going to put it in theaters with Disney Plus? And what they ended up doing was they they put it on Disney Plus the same day that it came out in theaters on July 9th. But they did the thing that they've been doing lately with some of their movies where they charge an extra $30 fee for a premier access title. Uh, on Disney Plus, so you have to pay 30 bucks in addition to subscribing to the service. Um, and so uh, she filed that lawsuit, and then um, she says that Disney intentionally induced Marvel's breach of the agreement without justification in order to prevent her from realizing the full benefit of her bargain with Marvel, is a quote from the lawsuit. And then Disney, uh, their response was basically to bring up the pandemic uh, and they said that the suit is, you know, has no merit and they called the suit especially sad and distressing and it's callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. So hang on. Um, And they said, they said she also made 20 million bucks already off of it. So. Well, invoking the pandemic in something like this is like invoking Hitler in a political argument is like, yeah, I mean, I mean, okay. Sure. Scarlett Johansson is hardly heading to the poorhouse here. Right. But I think anybody with uh, who looks at this rationally is going to think, well, maybe Disney should have uh, adjusted the contract or maybe her lawyer should have gotten in touch. You know, there should have been some something should have been arranged. You know, I, I don't like how they invoked the pandemic. That felt like kind of a cheap shot to me. And a sign, yeah, and I'll... And a sign that they were not going to win this. Yeah, and just kind of immediately going for that uh, instead of, you know, saying that uh, supposedly uh, Johansson's lawyers and her her legal team said that they reached out to try to renegotiate something once they found out that it was going to go to Disney Plus um, and that nothing could be worked out. Um, But, yeah, you're going to bring up, like, the COVID pandemic at a time when, like, you opened up your theme parks uh, in the middle of a a COVID spike. Right. (laughs) And you because you still just want people to come to your – yeah, yeah. You still want people to come to Disney World even though there's – you know, Florida's in the middle of a large spike in cases, which felt disingenuous. Those creepy ads where everyone's, like, wandering around Disney World wearing masks or whatever. And there's – you know, there's not like they're not releasing Disney movies in the theater. So it it just – it doesn't wash with me. Um, and what I also found interesting about your piece is you brought up a history of these kinds of rights disputes, and including you brought up uh, something uh, that, that triggered a memory from my boyhood, the Alan Dean Foster Star Wars novel Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was like the first Star Wars extended mm-hmm. universe. I loved that book when I was a kid. 
And uh, and he got he he was a he was a writer. He also wrote the novelization of Alien. He was a very he's a sci-fi writer, and he's still around. He's still working. Um, yeah. And he got screwed by in, in similar ways. Yeah, he uh, he like you said for Star Wars, uh, he basically like started the whole like concept that you could make Star Wars novels or you know stories that were apart from the original movies because the book came out at a time when you know no one knew where the movies were going to go. Um, and he said in 2020 uh, that he was not uh, getting paid enough royalties uh, for all the Star Wars stuff that he wrote and also alien novels too, now that Disney owns Fox. Um, but he said that that uh, disagreement got settled uh, this May. Um, and also there was the, um, the issue with Robin Williams playing the genie back when he said that he did not want to have his voice be used for marketing. He didn't want to be used for merchandising at all. And then he, you know, one day hears his voice, you know, sitting at home on a commercial uh, when he did not record the commercial. They just took audio from a, a voice recording session that he did. And so that kicked off a dispute with him for years where he wouldn't do any, you know, he refused to do another appearance as the genie uh, for like a direct to video release that they did and uh, all of that. And then so it took, you know, a, a transfer of power in some film departments to apologize to him. And then he settled all of that with them. So and I'm sure that's not the only uh, one or those aren't the only ones that Disney have had to, to deal with in the past. Those are just the most prominent uh, cases for that. But also, hey, if you want to. The takeaway here is if you're going to be in the entertainment business, have good lawyers mm -hmm. and get everything in writing, <laughs> get everything in writing. And, and you, since you're going to have to do business with Disney because they own everything pretty much. Make sure you have lawyers who understand how they operate. Yeah. And then if you want to go, you know, further away from Disney, like just this year, other people have also been uh, having disagreements about the type of money that they've been making off of stuff. Like John Krasinski and Emily Blunt uh, said that Paramount uh, didn't give them as much money as they could have because they moved that to their streaming platform after it was in theaters. And then uh, in the weird news of the weekend, Gerard Butler uh, came out of the gates swinging on Saturday and said that he wanted $10 million in back-end money from Olympus Has Fallen, which came out uh, in 2013. So, uh, How much did he want from Olympus Has Fallen? He said that the studio owes him at least $10 million, uh that he did not get due to some like shady shady Hollywood accounting uh, math stuff going on there. So, now, um, I, I'm not uh, generally inclined to feel empathetic towards Gerard <laughs> Butler, but, um, <laughs> you know, who I just I can't stand him. In movies, but, but it's just fascinating that this is going on. And, you know, it's just these, these are kinds of disputes are going to become uh, more and more prominent as the models for how movies are released continue to change. Yeah. And so we've, you know, used to be, you know, typically like the 90 day theatrical window and that window just keeps shifting getting smaller people are you know eliminating it entirely basically um like i think pig that we just talked about a few weeks ago is already available to rent on digital right now um and so as that changes i feel like you know the studios are either going to have to figure out a different way to renegotiate with stars like warners did with uh hbo and everyone when they decided to move all of their stuff to hbo max 
or they're just going to have to, you know, cope with getting sued by a bunch of stars who think that they're owed more money because of contract disputes. Yeah, I mean, the Writers Guild of America, which I am technically a member of, you know, engaged in has engaged in several labor actions when, you know, mm-hmm. when the sort of the models, the entertainment models are changing. So, um, and nothing is funnier than when uh, than when rich actors go on strike. But the thing is, this affects working actors too, people who aren't Scarlett. Yeah, Jones yeah. And Gerard Butler and John Krasinski, people for whom the residual check for a three line something that they have in a movie is the difference between being able to pay your rent and not. Obviously, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt aren't hurting for cash, but what they do at the top affects the rest of the Hollywood ecosystem on down. Exactly. Like if you're not getting royalties, you know, Galandine Foster, like his deal was just that he wasn't getting paid what he was owed from, you know, years ago. And if you're if you're, you know, someone who's not Galandine Foster, just an author working for, you know, day pay, you know, that royalty could make or break you, as you said. Exactly. All right. Well, Jake, great piece in this week's uh, Book and Film Globe. Uh, We will talk to you soon. Stephen Garrett is back on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Hello, Stephen. Hello. All right. So this week you have reviewed The Suicide Squad, the latest DC Cinematic Universe uh, superhero, anti-hero spectacular. Yes. So yes, I have. So <laughs> you did. You watched this movie. You watched this movie. Uh, the movie that I we watched it. We've been told to watch. Uh, everyone's telling uh, the the advertisements have been telling us to watch this for a while. Um, I find this is, this is the whole phenomenon of this movie is strange because there was a Suicide Squad movie three years ago and it was critically reviled but extremely popular, and they've completely right. done away with that entire cast with the exception of Margot Robbie. Yeah, no, pretty much, uh, and. Uh... I, I saw the uh, that Suicide Squad and had kind of a similar reaction to the movie I just saw last night, uh, which was the Suicide Squad, um, which is that it's a bit mind-numbing to see a bunch of irreverent uh, violence. The, the thing about David Ayer's version, and I guess it's not David Ayer's version because he's disowned it, and then that's its own argument about director's cuts and studio meddling, um, but, uh, it was very lurid. And I think regardless of what cut, uh, it would have been his or the studios, um, it just, there was something nasty and lurid about it the way that, uh, a lot of DC movies before his, uh, were getting, you know, Batman and Superman, especially were just getting darker, literally darker, cinemat- cinematographically darker, but also in terms of content. I, and I guess that, um, that, uh, that was their version of being edgy. I, I think edgy is an overused and under uh, and a misunderstood term uh, for stories that uh, just ended up being pretty nihilistic and and just I, I just felt queasy after I watched them. Um, I mean, this I it, feel queasy in a different way. This is a little more gleeful and I guess a little more uh, happy uh, go lucky in its uh, mass uh, uh, mass killings. And it's incredibly graphic violence. They turned the franchise over to James Gunn, who yes. directed the directed a lot of movies, but he directed the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, uh, which which 
were more PG than Suicide Squad movies, but they but they had that same sort of you know large ensemble cast pop sensibility to them, right? Yeah, I mean, if by pop sensibility you mean kind of needle drops of uh, you know popular music, then deep cut you know rock songs that you might have forgotten about but really love, um, you know uh, that is uh, playing in the background while people in slow motion either walk or shoot guns or you know, have explosions behind them. So I guess that's a pop sensibility. It seems to be the kind of the, the standard way of doing things. And uh, that's what I was kind of saying in this review, too. It just I, I didn't find this to be so uh, galvanically different from other superhero movies I've seen. They're still very cookie cutter and why he gets so much credit for breaking the mold or being, you know, outre or irreverent um, is kind of beyond me. I, I he has some funny jokes, and he has a B-movie sensibility, which I didn't really get into talking about. But I think that's the real story here is that, you know, he is, he is very, the way with Guardians of the Galaxy, but more so with this movie, he's really embracing these kind of B-movie roots. You know, he started out at Troma, which, you know, was very proud of its, you know, uh, kind of reveling in uh, disgusting um, special effects and, you know, gruesome deaths that were also hilarious. I mean, all of that DNA is very much on display in this movie, much more than I guess it could have been in a Marvel movie. And maybe that's where uh, this becomes something you haven't seen, um, which is to say just really, really graphic uh, violence. But, you know, we were already getting a taste of that in Deadpool, and I think that's, you know, Deadpool got there first, I think. And James Gunn certainly opened the door for that kind of movie um, to appear when he made Guardians of the Galaxy, which, you know, clearly was a comic book movie that didn't take itself too seriously. Uh, and this movie doesn't either. And it gets to the point of self-parody where, you know, like Polka Dot Man, I thought was somebody that got made up for this movie just to make fun of how stupid superheroes can get. And right. lo and behold, there's a Polka Dot Man that's in the DC uh, universe. Every and time. So I thought, all right. Sure. Every time, every time you think that something is too stupid to have actually been in comic books, <laughs> you're like, oh, no, wait, this was actually in comic books. Like, oh, no, there can't be a, a talking duck from the future or, or whatever another, from another dimension. That's, not, that's, that's never happened before. Or, you know, there's nothing too stupid to have been in comic books, which is why it's so, think, yeah. so bizarre. So bizarre that this it is just completely overwhelmed the culture to the point where like every almost every event movie now is is some sort of superhero spectacular. Yes, nothing is too stupid, and uh, this movie kind of talks about it. It also celebrates you know the, the 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 people who are considered trash and thrown aside. I mean, it's one of those misfit movies that you know has been around forever. I mean, this is the Dirty Dozen, but just kind of updated, you know. But the Dirty Dozen, you cared more about the characters, and they really were dangerous creepy, bad people who would literally rape, you know, um, and this movie would never get that, uh, sorted. Like there's, there's definitely a line that this movie would not cross. And I thought it was interesting too, like three different times. And it kind of stuck out in a really weird way with these, you know, immoral, you know, diffident murderers. Uh, but whenever a kid would get involved or whenever they said, Oh, we've got to, we've got to stop this because of the kids. Uh, I thought to myself, what is this some sort of get out of jail card for, you know, being this body and this disgusting and this foul mouthed is as long as it's for the kids, then it's okay, I guess. But, um, you know, again, this is about as edgy as a butter knife. This is this is really 
Very, very similar to many, many other superhero movies that you can see. They are becoming a dime a dozen, which uh, is kind of baffling to me, considering how expensive they are. Uh, but they seem to be more and more and more, and I don't know how you differentiate. I do think that this does make an attempt to differentiate, and I guess it should get um, you know, uh, a certain amount of props for that. But um, I was surprised. I, you know, the, the critics have been kind of backflipping over this movie, and I'm not really too sure why, because it doesn't seem that much different from so many other things we've seen before. Just read your comic books and stop complaining, Stephen. My God. <laughs> it's a comic yeah, book. Yeah. Comic book. You know, Margot Robbie once again playing Harley Quinn. I swear to God, she, she like, it would be a special event if she doesn't wear that makeup. Right, exactly. And I mean, you know, they really carve out like this is the point where we're going to do Harley Quinn for 10 minutes or, you know, what have you. Like she is the crown jewel or emerging as the crown jewel and arguably maybe even more important than Wonder Woman. You know, although the Wonder Woman movies, I, you know, as as bumpy as they might be, at least they have a certain amount of uh, earnestness and positivity about the human condition that is uh, weirdly lacking in a lot of these movies that I guess want to get more dour as a way of seeming more realistic or possibly more mature, neither of which is really kind of the case. uh, There were, there were a couple of good things about that Harley Quinn birds of prey movie, but I really, I really despise that film as well. I felt like it was extremely, (laughs) extremely. No, I was just going to say, I, I, I have to say I've never despised a superhero movie. I've just very rarely been surprised by a superhero movie. You know what I mean? So bird of birds of prey, that was fine. You know, these movies just seem fine. They just very rarely do anything, you know, notably different. Um, I mean, they, they, I like I'd have to go back to Buckaroo Banzai, you know, which Buckaroo. I can't remember whether it was a comic book. Was that ever even a comic book or did it become a comic book after it came out? I mean, well, what was the last time you saw it? Did you see have you seen a comic book movie that really, you know, grabbed you in a way that made you think, oh, this is really fun and really inventive and really yeah. different? What everybody I, else is doing. really different? No, but I, you know, I love Thor Ragnarok. And, yeah, that's and, fair. You know, and some of the some of the um, Marvel TV stuff. You know, some of the episodes of WandaVision were very creative, and uh, you know, a couple of the first couple episodes of Loki. The, the it, it, stuff occasionally creeps creeps in around the edges, and then it gradually just gets kind of subsumed by the the uh, larger culture that where er- everything is is a superhero all the time. Right, right, right. And I'd say, look, uh, the the uh, the animated Into the Spider Verse movie, I yes. thought was so funny and so smart and so witty, and really was doing inventive new things that uh, made me think about the material differently. Yeah, that um, was that was really good too. So it's not, yeah. so it it's is not, possible. It's not a hopeless uh, genre. It's just there's just a lot of it. There's there's quite a lot. A lot of fun. All right, Stephen. Well, you go back to being super in your daily life, and we'll you too. We'll talk to you soon. Sarah Stewart is back here on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Rotten Tomatoes. Let's 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 do that again. (laughs) I I have that I have that power now. In five, four, three, two, one. Sarah Stewart is back here on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Oh, my God. Come on, Paul. <laughs> Get it together. The outtakes. The outtake reels. The, the things aren't, but these aren't, like, these aren't good, like, cannonball run outtakes or anything. No, no, they're not. I should be giggling like Dom DeLuise. Like Dom DeLuise. <laughs> yeah.
Um, all right. In five, four, three, two, one. Sarah Stewart is back on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic Sarah Stewart. Hello. You have another Hello. film for us this week. I do. I do. It is uh, Val, the Val Kilmer documentary. A documentary about Val Kilmer. Well, that's very Book and Film Globe wheelhouse. You you had a, had a lot of good things to say about uh, the Val Kilmer documentary. Uh, Val is um, Val Kilmer has uh, reemerged re- re- recently in, in a much uh, diminished form physically, anyway. Uh, and a lot of people were really surprised about that. This this film catches him at, at that at sort of this uh, vulnerable moment. It does. It does. It's a little bit reminiscent of the Roger Ebert documentary which captured uh, the critic after he had had all the, the throat surgery and was also greatly diminished. But the, the difference here is that we really get to see a, a different side of uh, Val Kilmer, whereas I think that the Ebert documentary kind of, we, we knew who he was and it was kind of a loving portrait of his entire career. But for, for Kilmer, I, I think, you know, he's been somebody who's been a little enigmatic throughout his career. He's had a reputation for being a real jerk and uh, and also, you know, also very beloved uh, for a lot of his roles, particularly in the 80s and 90s, including by me. Um, but he is really he, he's a, a true eccentric and a real kind of seeker who's lived on a, a big ranch in New Mexico for a lot of his adult life. And uh, and clearly just has a lot more to say than we ever got to see him do in his roles, which I think is part of the reason that he wanted to make this documentary so much. I get the sense from, I have not seen it yet. It, it, it comes out on Amazon prime. Well, it'll, it'll be out by the time anyone's listening to this, but while we're talking, it comes out on Amazon prime tomorrow. And my, my wife seems interested uh, as, as a child of the eighties, Val Kilmer is, is, is in her consciousness as well. Um, it seems like he's got a, got a, um, like a Buddhist mysticism going on or, or is that simplifying it a little bit? No, he does. He's well, it seems to be a bit of a hodgepodge of kind of belief systems. He was raised uh, with a Christian scientist background. So he definitely has that, too. And I think that that has influenced some of the way that he has spoken about the throat cancer uh, that he's been struggling with. Uh, In a recent New York Times profile, uh, it, it talked about how he had been reluctant for a long time to even acknowledge that it was cancer. He had said kind of you know, this, my problems were caused by the treatments that I had for something with my throat rather than it, it just being cancer. Um, but he's definitely, uh, he's definitely also a bit of a mystic. Um, you know, we see some scenes, uh, throughout his life that he's filmed where he seems like he's kind of gone on Jim Morrison vision quests and, uh, and, and just kind of enjoys turning inward. He, he seems like he never really was comfortable being part of the, the Hollywood scene. Um, which which also might explain uh, kind of the lack of, uh, I don't know, coherency or, or, or fitting in, you know, with the Brat Pack or, or any other pack to speak of. Well, he, he famously played Jim Morrison in Oliver Stone's The Doors. And, you know, while that movie was kind of a mess in some ways, uh, no one could argue that uh, Kilmer's performance lacked intensity or accuracy or focus as a great performance. I really spent a lot of time in The Doors phase because I think um, – that was one of the real sweet spots for him. It was, you know, he, he really felt that he didn't often get to sink his teeth into really juicy roles. And I, I feel, you know, he felt like Morrison was somebody he could really dig into. And uh, for anyone who's seen the movie, you know, like you said, it's, it's definitely not a perfect movie as none of Oliver Stone's movies are. 
but it's such an iconic performance that for me, I, I really have a tough time. When I think of the doors, I have a tough time kind of remembering who's Kilmer and who's Morrison. Right. And, you know, and his other, his most famous roles, well, obviously uh, he was the Iceman in, um, in Top Gun. And he was, he played Batman once in a, an extremely sort of ironic, sticky way, which, you know, you talk about in his review, he, he really, um, you know, he really liked his Batman performance. He thought the material was so stupid that he went way in the comedy direction, which may, may have, may have been the right choice, you know, I, given the sort of serious turn Batman has taken in, in recent years. Um, and he also, you talk about weird science and then, Really, I want to real, real genius, not where it's at. Real, 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 real genius, right? I'm sorry, real genius. I, I'm sorry, I, I get the two mixed up. But really, this is an excuse. This whole segment was an excuse for you and I to talk about my favorite movie of all time, Top <laughs> Secret. Yes, Top Secrets. The greatest the movie best. ever made. Uh, you know, it, it, Top Secret is a is a lesser known. I'm surprised how few people know Top Secret. It's a Zucker Brothers movie that came out after Airplane, even after the uh, second Airplane movie, and uh, it's like a parody of Elvis movies and and you know World War II spy movies. And there's a lot of funny stuff about the conflict between um, Eastern and Western Bloc. And and Kilmer plays like an Elvis like rock star named Nick Rivers who goes on a goodwill tour of East Germany and gets involved in some of the most ridiculous spy shenanigans you could, you could ever imagine. And it just, he's so committed to that part. He's pretty dismissive of the movie in, in this documentary. He, he just refers to it as fluff. And uh, I reference a, an interview with the Zucker brothers where they talk about, you know, how it, it was occasionally difficult for them on set because Kilmer was so dedicated and so serious. And despite professing to be a big fan of, Kentucky Fried movie and having watched it a hundred times, you know, he showed up really wanting to take this role very seriously. And, and if you watch the movie again, which I did recently, it is really hilarious and kind of perfect that he's basically playing it straight, but, but also has this amazing comic time. I mean, he, he plays the timing perfectly. He's the, the, a great person for the role. I just think he maybe he almost, it seems like he thinks he's in a different movie than he is. Tuesday, that's Simchas Torah. Huh? That's just a line from, from Top Secret. It's what I quote all the time. Tuesday, that's Simchas Torah. That's just, <laughs> that's just you know, it just, it, it's endless. And the sight gag, I just love that movie. And, you know, for, for me, Val Kilmer always, you know, the, the, I, we have to pick like a number where I, I, I it's got to be his Tutti Frutti. I mean, his, that Tutti Frutti number in that East German nightclub is just one of the most enjoyable three minutes of cinema you're ever going to see. And he just oh, yes. it completely. I love Although, it. Although how silly can you get also a favorite? Yeah. I like how silly can you get? I, and I like the rug song too, in the diner. Yes, um, yes, and of yes, course, yes. and of course shop at Macy's and love me tonight. <laughs> yes. yes it, it, sure. goes on, it goes on and on. I, I've, I've seen top secret so many times. I don't know if that explains anything about me. It probably does. Uh, all, only good things. Yeah. All good things. I, I am surprised like you, you know, everyone's seen airplane. Everyone knows airplane, you know, to death, but I think top secret still flies a little bit under the radar. It, it is, does not get the same press that the naked gun and airplane do, but it is just as good. And it is the most, 
some of the most, like the most Val Kilmer other than The Doors that you're going to get in a movie he's in. And, and I he, think, you know, if, if one good thing can come out of this review, it's that more people discover Top Secret. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make it my life's mission. <laughs> I got nothing better to do. All right, Sarah, thanks a lot. Val is available for streaming on Amazon Prime. You'll know everything you need to know about Val Kilmer. We'll talk to you soon. What's your take on this Jeopardy thing? Um, you know, I thought Mike Richards was fine. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you watched his episodes. No, 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 no. I don't watch the show, full disclosure, uh-huh. but I love uh-huh. that you're past with it. And it's yeah. a great show. I just don't really watch it. It's not widely known about me because I, I rarely talk about it or write about it, but I was on Jeopardy. Uh, six or seven years ago, I, I won three games of Jeopardy. I'm a Jeopardy contestant. It is a uh, a core part of my identity, and I do, I still play competitive trivia to this day, and I love it, and it is my my primary hobby. And I still watch Jeopardy, unlike a lot of former Jeopardy contestants, uh, because it is you know the greatest uh, the greatest trivia TV show ever devised, and uh, it's sort of it's a sport that I follow with a lot of passion. And uh, Jeopardy had a very has had a very uh, strange and twisty path since Alex Trebek passed away. There have been a lot of guest hosts and a lot of discussion about who the next permanent host is going to be. And last week marked the, uh, it was a an important week in that in that discussion because LeVar Burton finally made an appearance. LeVar Burton uh, was subject of a, a passionate online fan campaign to get uh, the former Reading Rainbow host on. The show, and we have an article up this week about how he did and what happened while he was on the show. Daniel Cohen, who writes about Jeopardy for a book and film Globe, wrote the article and is here to talk to me about it. Hello, hi Neil. Hello. All right. So, you know, Lavar Burton's appearance was kind of strange and disappointing. I would say. I I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, it's it's. One of the things that I was I was really surprised by was the fact that he made as many like rudimentary mistakes as he did. There were there was there were situations even late in the week last week where a contestant would give a correct answer and he ruled it negative and then you know corrected himself on air. Um, you know a lot of like just just a very strange cadence as far as how he, how he read clues. It didn't feel terribly smooth at all, and that's surprising considering the fact that. I think he struggled much more with with the material than than any other guest host they've had so far. They've had people that aren't as closely connected with the world of game shows as he is. He's been on Jeopardy several times as a contestant. Yeah, you know, it's funny. He he campaigned himself for it. He said, I want to be the host. I love the show. And he was really encouraging fans to hashtag him into the position and – he had months to watch the guest host. I mean, he was at, he's at the end of the run. There's two more weeks of guest hosts coming up. Uh, some guy from CNBC and then Joe Buck, neither of whom are, are heavy candidates to, to win the title of next permanent Jeopardy host. But, you know, LeVar Burton had a chance to really kind of see how it was going. And I feel like he, he just, he just made mistake after mistake, a very, very strange and awkward performance. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, well, it, when people are unfavorably comparing him with Dr. Oz. One of the things I, I, I honestly felt really bad about was the fact that his enthusiasm was so obvious and sincere and contagious that you wanted him to do really well. Um, and even after the first episode, you know, they, they taped five episodes a day. He, that, that entire week was, was taped in one day. After Monday, I'm hoping to myself, like, maybe he'll correct it. Maybe he'll, he'll get back in the swing of things and sort of, once he has a show under his belt, be a little bit more natural. But it, but it just felt very stilted the entire week. And I, I don't think he ever really showed what he was capable of, which is probably not a great sign for his chances of, of getting the job full time. Well, and it's unfortunate, too, because he didn't just preside over an ordinary week of, of Jeopardy wins and losses where you get a, someone winning a game or two and then someone else. I mean, he was presiding over the reign of what's known in Jeopardy parlance as a super champion, right? Matt, Matt Amodio, yeah. a grad student from Yale, has just been tearing the game up. I don't – I mean, it's possible that by the time anyone's listening to this, he could still be on, although, you know – He's won seven games, and the more games you win at Jeopardy, the closer you get to the end. The thing is that he's not just winning, but he's dominating. And he he had a game last Thursday, you know, where he 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 finished with seventy four thousand dollars, which is I think a top twenty all time score in the history of the show. Um, that's not normal, and that's not n- normally that's incredibly newsworthy in its own right, but like. It felt like uh, his dominance was really being subsumed the entire week by all the controversy and hype over LeVar. And it's understandable. Again, you know, people were very passionate about it. A lot of people really wanted to see him get the job. Um, but I was honestly pretty surprised all week by the relative lack of coverage of what this dude is doing. I mean, it's it's you're in rarefied air at this point when you're talking about, you know, having won 300 grand and having won whatever it is now, nine games, eight games. Um, you can count the number of people that have done that on two hands. And when you get to that point, usually that's a story in and of itself. And this, it, it doesn't even feel like we've sort of come to terms with the fact that we probably have our best Jeopardy champions since James Holzhauer doing this in real time right now. And yet we're still talking about LeVar Burton. Yeah, I would agree that he's the best since James Holzhauer. I mean, you know, Jason Zuffernary did win 19 games um, and, was, and is a great player, great player, but he did it in a more sort of a methodical, ordinary fashion. He wasn't, he, he, whereas Demodio feels like he's the, or Amodio, however you pronounce it, feels like he's the first player to really, you know, master the game since Holzhauer, that no one has, no one has, has sort of taken it over in that way since Holzhauer left the stage. And that was several years ago. Yeah, that was, that was, um, it's, it's been a couple of years now, two, two and a half years, I think. And yeah, no disrespect to, to uh, Jason Zafiniri, who, yeah, that number is, is a pretty significant number in its own right. But I think stylistically, like, they're not comparable. I think, I, and again, that's not a, it's not a value call, but it's like when you watch Matt just completely destroy a game, which he's done several times now, it's like, you know, you don't get to see it too often on this show. And I guess to follow up, like, the point I made just a minute ago, like, when Alex Trebek was alive, one of the things that he made a point of bringing up multiple times in interviews was, you know, this show is not about me. I'm not the star of Jeopardy. I'm the host of Jeopardy, et cetera. This is about the contestants, not the host. And, like, that fact is so 
important to keep in mind right now when sort of there's a lot of discussion happening about both sides of the show. Like the show is going to endure based on the quality of contestants like Matt, like Jason, uh, like Holtower for that matter. Um, regardless, well, regardless of the or anybody on a daily basis. I mean, you know, you got view of people who come in for two or three games and still kind of shine bright real briefly or have a lot of personality. That's true, but there's there's also a tendency for ratings, which is ultimately what anybody cares about, whether it's pertaining to the host of the contestants. Ratings go up when you have a super champion. Ratings are never higher than when somebody like Holtzauer or Ken Jennings is, you know, in the middle of a huge streak. But... I think it's also worth worth remembering that Alex Trebek had hosted game shows for however many years before Jeopardy debuts. Like he was not new to this at that point. And I'm not saying necessarily that the next host needs to be a game show lifer, but there was never a guarantee that LeVar Burton was going to be great at this. And it turns out that he's not. Sure. And I will say, you know, he was very enthusiastic about Matt Amodio's run and he certainly presided over it and you know, as a fan of the show you could tell he he was into it it just that his sh- his uh his management of the game was was weird <laughs> that's all I'm, that's that's really my only criticism it's not that he wasn't kind or that he wasn't excited or that you know he didn't understand what was going on it was there was there were just a lot of mistakes more than any other host i've seen and i've watched most of the episodes uh in the post trebek era yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, if somebody if somebody gets seventy four grand on Jeopardy, it's 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 no secret that something unusual is happening. And and I think he he lent that game specifically the correct amount of gravitas when it came to the audience knew that you know this was a big deal. Yeah, um, agreed. Uh, okay, so real quick before we go, um, you wrote a piece months ago handicapping who you thought the next host was going to be. Where does that sit now? Because that decision is going to come down within the next few weeks. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting question. Um, honestly, if if it weren't for the fact that he re-signed, I would have probably said that Aaron Rodgers would would we would have would have been the favorite until about a week ago. I have to think he's off the board now because he's going to be playing quarterback with the Green Bay Packers next year. Um, it wouldn't shock me if somebody like Robin Roberts is maybe being considered a lot more seriously than she was before all this went down. I thought she was actually very good at, at, at this and sort of, I think checks a lot of boxes in terms of her curating and like authority. Um, she did a lot better than a lot of other people who are coming from the news world into the game show world. Um, well, she, she has a sports background. That's true. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, but I, you know, I think I thought that most of the news and TV people were all pretty interchangeably decent. I still feel like, in my, to my mind, they're going to end up giving it to Ken Jennings or Buzzy Cohen, one of the former Jeopardy champions who hosted it. Both, I thought both of them were better than you could have hoped. Really, Buzzy, Buzzy, I thought was actually tremendous. And 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 I, if they if they do want to go that route and give it to a former contestant. I have to think that the fact that he did as well as he did hosting the Tournament of Champions and doesn't have some of the baggage that Ken Jennings has uh, is really favorable for him. I mean, it, it if they announced tomorrow that Buzzy was the host, I don't think anybody would have a problem with it. No, I think a lot of people would who aren't Jeopardy dorks would say who. Who, but, right. But that's okay. 
a lot of, a lot of people would say who, but but there's an answer to that. It's like the guy who did really well for two weeks hosting the TOC. Right, and is also one of the better, one of yeah. the top twenty players of all time on the show. So, and and you know has a you know a lot of personality and a good sense of humor and a unique sense of style, all that stuff. So I don't know. I mean that that would be that would be a, a cool choice that I would and probably a cousin of mine from pro- pro- probably. Probably we need a Jewish host of Jeopardy. That's that's yeah. what I say. We, we we do need more Jewish figures in the media. That that would be really uh, helpful to our cause. Indeed. All right. Agreed. So, all right, Daniel. Thanks a lot. Uh, we will talk to you uh, the, the next time uh, Jeopardy is in the news, which will all right, probably be next week. All right. And then after I talked to Daniel, Jeopardy announced that Mike Richards, the show's executive producer, was the heavy favorite in deep negotiations. To become the new host of Jeopardy. It's kind of like when Dick Cheney was in charge of selecting the vice president for George W. Bush, and he chose himself. Mike Richards is almost certainly going to be the new host of Jeopardy, and that's fine. He's a square jaw, very handsome man. He'll be able to do it for 20 years without collapsing, and we'll just keep watching Jeopardy because it is the greatest game show ever devised by humans. We're closing out this week, of course, with Val Kilmer singing Tutti Fruity from the soundtrack of Top Secret, the greatest comedy ever made. This has been the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I'm Neil Pollock, your editor-in-chief, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Please keep reading the site. Please keep listening to us. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. Have a great one. value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.